down women with diluted dreams are home for joy has been washed down the stream. I'm Robin Hawkins, and you're listening to Watered Down Women. Hoping to be free, found a new home in the cemetery. According to scripture, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. And unlike the cartoon images from our childhood, he isn't a red, two-horned, pointed-tail creature carrying a trident. Instead, evil takes on many forms. It may appear as a man raping a woman on a subway train. It might show up as a mother who places her young children securely in their car seats and then drives them into a lake. Evil may emerge as a cold-blooded assassin who walks through a crowded mall and shoots innocent bystanders. And evil could easily arrive as the boy next door. A common host for evil is the sociopath, who has a pattern of disregarding and violating the rights of others. Just because someone might be a very smooth talker, it doesn't automatically qualify him as a sociopath. According to Encyclopedia Britannica, and as listed in the DSM, in order to be diagnosed with an APD, or antisocial personality disorder, certain criteria must be met. A qualified number of habitual and continual behaviors must be exhibited in order to be properly diagnosed. Some of those actions include serious violations of criminal laws, deceitfulness, impulsiveness, aggressiveness, and lack of remorse or guilt. Sociopath and psychopath are interchangeable words that could accurately describe the personality of serial killer Ricky Lee Green. Green and his wife Sharon engaged in a cat-and-mouse type game with their female victims in that he would lure them to his and Sharon's trailer. Then the sadistic couple would sexually assault them, stab them to death, mutilate their genitalia, and then engage in fiendish sexual acts while they bathed in their victim's blood. During his solo acts of murder, Green sought out homosexual males, including a 16-year-old boy, and then would brutally and repeatedly stab his prey and remove their genitalia. While killing the young boy, he attempted to decapitate him, but was unsuccessful in his efforts. The pair was eventually arrested and convicted 
with Green being sentenced to death, and his wife was given ten years probation for her part in the death of the two female victims. In her novel, Blood Rush, author Patricia Springer, a former reporter turned true crime writer, visited Green while he was awaiting execution because she wanted to ask if he was responsible for the death of a 19-year-old family friend. He denied responsibility for that young woman's death, but went on to share lurid details of four murders he had confessed to, including that of Betty Jo Monroe. Green said that he saw Betty Jo hitchhiking near Fort Worth and offered her a ride. He offered to take her to his mobile home to take a shower and get something to eat and that his wife's young daughter was in the car with him, Betty Jo might have felt more comfortable going along with the stranger. When they arrived at his home, he sent the child outside, led Betty Jo to the bathroom to shower, and then took her to his bedroom to engage in sex. At some point, Green's wife entered the room and attempted to join them. Betty Jo told them that she wanted to leave, but they refused to honor her request. Instead, they forced her back into the bathroom where Ricky Lee began raping her and Sharon ran to the kitchen for a knife and stabbed her throughout the rape. As Betty Jo fought for her life, Sharon then took a hammer and began bashing her in the head. In the interview with Springer, Green said that he told Betty Jo that she was a whore who deserved to die. He bragged about purposely cutting off one of her breasts and said that he may have also raped her with the hammer, but he was so drunk that he really couldn't remember. When the ghastly ordeal was over, he placed her body in the trunk of his wife's car, drove to a remote area where one of his friends lived, and then dropped her body from a bridge. When Betty Jo's naked body was found with very little evidence and none of her personal belongings, her identity remained unknown for several years. With no leads and no tips, the investigators saw her as another Jane Doe. But because her body had a scar from a cesarean section, they decided to refer to her as Mama Doe. Years later, when Michelle read the book Blood Brush and learned that fact, she immediately thought back to that drawing her grandmother had shown her as a child. The picture Betty Jo had drawn as a youngster, the picture of a mama doe with her fawn. Although recalling that moment brought back a temporary moment of happiness, Michelle struggled with learning the truth as to what had happened to her mom, especially 
the grisly and horrific details of her final moments. After I read the book, it was a part of me scarring. Um, I, at that moment, I felt like I did handle it well, but a part of me felt like I didn't handle it at all. I, I went through a very big depression then. I'll be honest with you, for a moment, I did think about suicide. I did think about because I was thinking, what am I worth? You know, my mom's gone. You know, I'm not a full person because I never know my mom. And I don't understand people's emotions on that. And even though as a mom myself, I still felt like, am I going to be a good enough mom for my kids? Because my mom wasn't around to show me what a mom is supposed to be like. So it was, it was emotional. And after talking with my boyfriend a lot, crying a lot, and just one night just praying, it's like, please take this insanity from me. I say, I'll do whatever I need to do. You know, I'll get through it. I'll try to show as much love as I can for my mom, but just let me get past this because I want to be here. You know, I want to live. I want to, you know, enjoy my life with my kids. But I felt like finding this truth out, it helped me. But I also, for a minute, it hurt so much because I didn't know what to do with it. I just didn't know. Although it was difficult, Michelle began to put the pieces of her life back together. With the help of her family members, especially her children and boyfriend, she was able to process the painful and newly discovered truth about her mom's disappearance. As awful as that news was to hear, and even more agonizing to try to comprehend, Michelle began to realize that she could finally put an end to the nonstop wondering and endless questioning about her mom's past and look forward to her own future. I think every day we grow and we learn, so I learned to have more peace. From Michelle at 43 to Michelle at 27, I found a lot of peace. And I think every day I'm finding more peace. I'm grateful every day my mom is my mom. Um, I'm grateful for my kids. I'm grateful for my friends and family. And I think I have found happiness, even though I find happiness in knowing what happened to my mom. You know, she's got an end. You know, even though it's brutal, I know. And not myself, just myself, but my children, her grandchildren know what happened to their grandma. And it's sad, but we know, okay, that's a part of her story. That's what happens. She may have not choose to stay out of her lives forever. It wasn't her choice. But I think I found peace in knowing that she found justice. She did get justice. As my interview wrapped up with Michelle, I asked her if she was able to speak with her mom today. What would she say to her? I would tell her that I love her. And I hope one day, you know, hopefully we see each other in heaven. And I finally get that mom hug that I can remember. I would tell her that it wasn't her fault 
for what happened to her and that that I love her no matter if she was in my life or not because she gave birth to me and there's little quirks and stuff even though I wasn't around her to remember I have them I'm very proud she's my mom and I just want people to know that she was a caring person and that she was loved by me and our family and that just tell her that I love her and I'm proud of her evil triumphs when its victims harbor bitterness and unforgiveness. Michelle hasn't done that. And incredibly, many of the people I have interviewed throughout these past four seasons have granted forgiveness to those who have caused them seemingly irreparable harm. As I end season four, I plan to put my shovel back into the shed and now I'll sharpen my pencil because this podcast will be taking a hiatus, but watered down women will go on. I'm happy to announce that I have been approached about the possibility of turning season two's Summer of Sorrow into a feature film. So work on the podcast will be interrupted to allow for script writing for this new project. Please keep up with our Facebook page and our website, waterdownwomen.com, to follow our progress on this exciting project. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll soon be watching. Water down women with diluted dreams a home for joy has been washed down the street a fool's paradise hoping to be free found a new home in the cemetery weekend in life while searching for love From above, passionate promises made with each breath, deceptive affection ended in death. Girl's shattered image of a fairy tale life was filled with the agony of bruises and strife, reaching for anything to resemble promise. Savagery that was a mess. Watered down women with diluted dreams. All hope for joy has been washed down the street.